0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of How to Be a Great GM uh, podcast. My name is Guy and we're going to go through the next journey in our story of human development and how it can affect us because I am building up to something, folks. I really am building up to something and I hope it's going to be useful for you. Uh, if not inspirational, then, then, then at least uh, entertaining in some shape, form or fashion. Now... Our wonderful little folk have developed the ability to write things down, and last week we saw that when you write things down, they become rules and laws and all kinds of weird and wonderful things that come out of that, including confusing poor game masters and dungeon masters as to what rule calls to make for certain player characters at certain times. All of that they did not know when they were developing their system of keeping track of grain supply and who had done what. Now, another interesting thing that starts to happen when you put people together is that there is naturally going to be a hierarchy that starts to form. The reason for this is manyfold, and there is all kinds of psychology involved in that, and I've tried to read into some of that, and I have applied it to my role-playing sessions as well. If you watch my videos on the different types of adventurers, the defender, the soul, the adventurer type, this all speaks to the different psyche states that we see seem to have as a species, and I think that I'm not going to go over those again, you can just watch those videos if you're interested in those different uh, types of character. Now, once you start to get a hierarchy, you start to get things that change, and what fundamentally changes is on a scale value. Now, if you think about Facebook, Facebook as a fantastic example of this. You look at some folk and they've got 20 friends on Facebook and you go, oh, that's nice. That's, that's cute. You look at others and they've got a thousand friends on Facebook and you're like, okay, maybe you know a thousand people and possibly you could name five or 600 people. It's an interesting exercise when you actually start counting it out, but you go, okay, well, my classmates, I could probably remember my classmates from high school, not all of them that That's for sure. If I saw a photograph, maybe I could remember. So that's arguably 150 names there. Then, you know, junior school. Well, maybe so. I don't know. Let's see. Anyway, you start pushing the limits and you realize that as a human, you know of. Uh, several hundred people maybe a thousand people or so if you have a good memory but you actually only care about a handful of them when you see on facebook posts so-and-so from the class of 92 or whatever has had a baby you go yay i don't really care really honestly let's be honest does anyone care i don't they probably care and their close friends care What happens as humans is we generally will find a comfortable space between 20 and 40 people that are our people that we care about and that we are invested in and that we want to try and help, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. We know this to be true when we start to look at cultures that still operate very much in the same way as hunter-gatherers did thousands of years ago. We can see that it's these groups, once they start getting over the 45, 50 kind of mark, things start to become wonky. And there's a reason for it. We no longer care. So, what happens in a society where you've gone from having 40 people who each know each other and are invested in each other's survival? Because, quite frankly, if Brian can't go out and hunt to gather, it means Marge is going to have to go and kill that saber toothed tiger. And, well, things, you know, it puts more pressure on Marge, and we don't want that. And, oh, it becomes complicated. However, when Brian, and you go, who the hell is Brian? And everyone goes, oh, isn't he the cousin of someone's aunt's, uncle's, postman's, wife's, third uh, uh, maid? I don't know, probably. Brian's sick today, yeah? And what do I care? Well, he can't, you know, do his pottery designs. I don't even use his pottery. I'm still using hand-woven baskets, thank you very much. I don't care about Brian. Brian can go die for all I care. Well, that's not very fair. Well, of course, you know that Brian believes this, and I believe that. And because I don't care about Brian anymore, I can tell Brian what to do, because I've written mine down using that new fancy technology that we've got. And all of a sudden, you start to get... Factions forming. Now, factions are remarkable things. They are literally inventions that we have created to go, this is what I believe in and these are the people that believe in it as well. And that's what we love doing. That's that's an innate human thing. We just do that and we go, right, uh, we're role players and with this kind of role player with that kind of role player oh i'm only a player i'm not a gm oh i'm only a gm oh no i can be a gm or a player i don't, don't mind we create these groupings as fast as we possibly can to differentiate whom our little group is of 40 that we can associate with and that we can trust versus the others that are not in that group so when you go to a convention and you see there are thousands of people there, You're still not going to talk to them, even though you're all frantically, desperately there for the same reason, to enjoy role-playing and to enjoy being the geek and the nerd and the thing and the whatever category you don't want to fall into are but there is a certain sense of calm and ease knowing that all of the people here have similar ideas now i guarantee you if you did a random pull of 40 people from that room you'd get simulationists you'd get role players you'd get actors you'd get narrators you'd get storytellers you'd get soloists you'd get all of the wonderful mixtures that cause such grief at our tables in that group but you could find clusters of simulationists who would have a great time playing together versus, say, a whole bunch of soloists who really enjoy sitting around the table trying to be the only hero in that particular story. So. The point I'm trying to make is that as our evolution as a culture started to shape, we started to get some fundamental society building blocks which are still true to this day 15, 20, 30, 40, 60,000 years after they were first emerging in our little brains. Nothing has changed, folks. And this goes back to our storytelling as well. Nothing has changed. Now some of the biggest fundamental differences which remain to this day have to do with time. Now time is something that starts to creep in once you are an agrarian society because you need to know I need to plant these seeds now because in six months time winter is going to turn everything into ice and the plants need to grow in that six month period. Suddenly time becomes very very important. When you are living as a hunter-gatherer and you are living in a tropical paradise such as, say, Central Africa or the Amazon rainforest, there is no major shift between winter and summer. The grass goes from being bright green to dusty brown, but everything else remains relatively the same. The animals stay there. There, are, might, there might be some migrations happening, but on the whole, the environment remains the same. So time is not important. When you then have to worry about time, time becomes very important. But then also how you interpret time becomes very important. We are a linear species, as Star Trek is so fun to point out. We are absolutely obsessed with the past, the present, and the future, if you care about time. There are many cultures that come from the Southern Hemisphere or the equator areas that don't have a concept of past, present and future. Or they only get that concept by describing the events around the concept, using words to, to, to do that. You go into Europe where time is very important and everything is about time. Punctuality, customs, all those kinds of things suddenly become very, very important. However, when you shift over to the east, And the view of time in the East is different in general and in broad strokes from the view of time in Europe, for example. You suddenly go, well, how is it different? Well, in the East, they view time as a cycle. It goes around and around and around. The entire idea of reincarnation, of going on journeys attaining higher levels of consciousness. It's a cyclical nature as nature is cyclical. In terms of winter, we'll have spring, we'll have summer, we'll have autumn, we'll have winter. It is a cycle. As far as Europe is concerned, it is not a cycle. It is very, very specifically a dead end that you will reach when you die. And then maybe you'll have something happening after that, but you certainly don't get to come back. Again, I'm talking in giant broad strokes here. How does that affect anything? Well, here's what I find absolutely fascinating. When you look at how stories are told in the East, for example, and by East I'm saying everything basically from mm, sort of Moscow towards Japan – And uh, you look at how their narratives work, they're cyclical. So the story can start almost anywhere in in the entire narrative, and it doesn't have to end at what we would be hoping for as Westerners is a predefined ending, because... The idea of time being cyclical, the idea of the hero's journey is also cyclical. Yes, the hero overcome a great obstacle today, but tomorrow he might face another one. And the day after he might face another one. And when he gets to the end of his journey, he's not at the end of his journey. He's only at this point in his journey. We, on the other hand, in the Western Hemisphere, and I'm saying Moscow all the way to, let's say, Ireland, are absolutely obsessed with this idea of a beginning, a middle, and an end because we need things nicely wrapped up and done because there's a high probability that it will be done at the end of the story in terms of we'll all die of some horrid plague or disease or freeze to death or starve to death or be killed or taken into sleep, just, you know, generally speaking. That is the different approach. So when you then start to look at that, you go, okay, well, that's fascinating. And that came from one group saying, we think time is cyclical, and another group going, no, it's linear. You can't go back in time. You can't go and change yesterday. And you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you do know what's happening now, or just a little bit now now, but not just now. You can't change that anymore. That's gone now. So it's only now now, and coming up now is what you can sort of guess at, but you still don't know, uh, except just right now you know what's happening. Anyway. The entire point of that is that another thing gets affected quite heavily as well, and that's our music. Because, again, our approach to music in the uh, Western ideologies anyway is linear. Our approach to time is linear, I should say. Our approach to music becomes linear as well. We have the um, opening movement, we have the second movement and the third movement, and then the fourth final movement where everything comes together and concludes. Whereas if you go to the East, you start to discover that music just starts and then finishes when it feels like finishing. There is no gigantic climax, just a different approach. Now, why, why does knowing all of this help us in any way, shape, or form when it comes to role-playing. I know for a lot of people it's like, yes, this is yawn material, no one cares. Uh, We listen to music how we listen to music, and the Eastern music is being influenced by Western music, and Western music is certainly being influenced by Eastern music, so we're kind of losing all of those old differentiators anyway. What do we care? Well, in my opinion, this is the point where most fantasy games start to change from reality. And so understanding how we got to this point can be really useful in determining the shape and the nature of the cultures and the creatures and the species that we put into our own games. So if you are creating an orc group, you need to sit back and say, okay, well, let's see, the orcs are very heavy set. They're very robust individuals. They would be working originally as tribes. Why would they gather as a gigantic organization? If you want to have a large orc army, where does that army come from? Why were they motivated to join up on such big forces? Why did they need to get to being such big numbers? Now, not drawing a parallel between orcs and the Zulu warriors of southern Africa, but drawing in terms of how or where do big armies come from, things change quite radically. In the uh, Zulu culture, for example, traditionally, each little village of about 30 or 40 people, maybe 50 at a push, would survive on its own as a little chiefdom, and life was okay. It was only when a certain individual by the name of Shaka Zulu came into power that he changed everything and decided that he wanted all of the villages in the area to bow down and pay homage to him as the greatest king who ever lived or be destroyed. And in order to do that, he needed to create an army, and that army needed to be able to get around and do what it needed to do, which was basically go and slaughter anyone who said, no, we won't bow down to you. The challenge with Zulu's forces, of course, is that they could only travel a certain distance before quite literally having to stop and go back home because of a logistics problem. Now, to put it into context, when the British Empire in 1875 decided to invade the Zululand Territory, which was a fertile, wildlife-filled place where you could arguably go in and hunt for food and so on, the British went in with a small, meagre force of only 25,000 troops. It wasn't huge by any stretch of the imagination— And they took six and a half thousand head of cattle with them, plus several thousand staff members to provide food for this campaign that was surging into the uh, northern parts of southern Africa. The Zulu army did not have this logistical capacity, and unlike the British army, they also didn't have the wheel. They hadn't ever needed to develop the wheel because there were no settlements to trade grain with, because you didn't need to, because you were self-sustaining as a hunter-gatherer with some minor agrarian businesses on the side. As a result, the British could get all the way into the Zulu territories and dominate the Zulus for a whole bunch of other reasons as well, as opposed to the Zulu army who could only extend out to about two or three days travel from the capital before they ran out of supplies so we then take that and we say okay so let's have a look have orcs invented the wheel or do they have some kind of domesticated animal that will allow them to launch an invasion uh, on a scale that most fantasy worlds have and if your answer is well no i want them to be like the plains indians the Plains Indians, also not known for having great amount of wheeled vehicles. I know later on they did, of course. But initially, the wheel was not something that had been developed. If you head down into the south, you have the Aztec empires. Again, the wheel was there, but it wasn't being used how we would use it for an invasion campaign. So if you want your orcs to be more like the Plains Indians of the great USA, then you also have to realize that creating a giant invasion army is very unlikely if you haven't developed writing a system of laws, a system of regulations, a system of control, a system of support and of managing supply of food. It's a it's the old axiom, an army marches on its stomach. In this case, the Zulu warriors couldn't invade Cape Town from the uh, eastern side of the uh, Southern Africa. They just didn't have the food to get there. They couldn't support themselves to get that far. They certainly had the military prowess and the, the, the courage and the ability, but they just didn't have the logistics. So we again turn back to this period of human um, cultural development, say roughly about ten to 12,000 years ago, and we start to see how things become very difficult in order for our cultures to change. It's an interesting question, but it's not as interesting, I think, anyway, as when it comes to our domesticated animals. And domesticating animals is something that will really separate those that have small groups to those that have empires. Because all domesticated animals, as far as humans are concerned, have a function even if that function is to be cute and cuddly and to teach our children about respecting life in terms of looking after that useless little gerbil thing that they found cute. All of that, though, is contingent on the particular type of animals in the area that you happen to be in, and all of that also requires the animal to have certain characteristics, and if it doesn't, you simply won't get an orc riding a rhino into battle, as sad as that might be. And we're going to look at that next week as to what our animals need in order for us to succeed. Until then, happy gaming.